good morning. It is my pleasure once again to have the privilege, and I do mean that, privilege to bring the lesson this morning. Um, when Brother Jonathan asked me, I guess it had been a couple of weeks ago, uh, he said that I was, I filled the 10th spot that he needed to fill. So however long Randy had been out, there were 10 spots to fill, and the people that he asked, all of them said yes, one at a time. And of course, he asked me last, I don't know what that means, but either way, we filled up all 10. And the fact that a congregation of this size has the men who uh, can volunteer and have the great ability to fill all 10 of those slots when the preacher's out with a couple weeks' notice, that, that says a lot about us, and I'm very proud of that, um, for sure. The... Uh, topic this morning is going to be God and government. I don't expect that you guys are going to hear anything new, but I'm hoping to maybe present a few different things, uh, a few different ways. So government is one of three institutions that God has given us. The church, obviously, marriage, and government. Now marriage, uh, for those of you who may not have known, yesterday, uh, Trail White and Sharon got married. We went to uh, Leaper's Fork, beautiful little town. Everything is, uh, you know, old-fashioned, 1800s, that kind of era. Um, very nice wedding, very nice ceremony. But the institution of marriage is one that God had put in place for us to follow. Most of us respect it nowadays. Some don't. And then there's government, the main three. In the Bible, there are many different examples of how God uses government. Think back to Egypt, to Joseph. Remember, he was sold as, into a slave, was, was made a member of Potiphar's house, uh, was put back in jail, and then was risen up through his ability to interpret dreams to become one of the, you know, he was number two. He was the man underneath Pharaoh over Egypt. And remember through his story, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Well, God used Joseph and that Egyptian power to save the bloodline of Jesus. Through Joseph being in charge, he was able to bring his family down into Egypt, and they prospered. They had food. They were able to eat and survive. And I think a little further through the timeline, you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians, two governments, two countries and armies that God used to punish the children of Israel. Do you think it's a coincidence that, that those two countries were powerful at the exact time that God deemed that uh, the children of Israel needed to be punished for their, I guess, inaction, for their actions? Is it a coincidence that they were able to do that at that time? I don't think so. And what about the United States? What about our, our government? How does God use our government? Well, this is maybe uh, not quite from the Bible, but we know that the United States is a land of freedom. We know that we have the freedom to pursue our religious beliefs. We know that we have the uh, freedom to act on them to act on the Great Commission. You know, there are a lot of countries in this world that don't let people preach the word. And so where does government get its authority, get its right to rule over us? Well, men give government authority because, you know, we vote for those ahead. We live in the country where that government is in place. But more importantly, God has given government authority. The authority that God uses to rule over us is given by God. Romans 13.1, we just read it. I'm going to read uh, verse 1 again. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be, that's speaking of government, the powers that be, 
are ordained of God. <clears throat> How are we supposed to treat government? I know that there, and at least nowadays in, in this climate that we live in, there is a lot of uh, jokes, there's a lot of sarcasm and cynicism and criticism about the way that our government is doing things. But how are we supposed to react to that? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. And then he continues with other examples. Submit yourselves. Now, there are two different words that are used kind of in this area. There is submission and there is subjection. They're very similar words, but they're not, not quite the same. Subjection is you're forced to do these things. Okay? Submission is you want to do these things. So in the, the same vein that men are to submit to Christ as the leader of the church, the same way as a wife is to submit to her husband, it is out of love. It is out of the willingness to, to know that, that you're being led in the right way, led in the right path, and that you want to submit yourself to them. This is how we are supposed to treat government. Not sub subject to, but in submission to. Well, does this apply, that second bullet point, when government doesn't respect God's word? How do we as Christians need to interact with government, need to treat, need to portray, and teach our children about government when they don't agree with God. Well, we know that Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he wrote that Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And I want you to think of, of our relationship with government and our leaders at this point in time. Again, some of us probably have different opinions. Some of us think that they're not doing very well. But let, let's look at the political leaders that were in place during Paul's lifetime. I'm sorry that this is a little small. Um, I tried to fit as much as I could on this one slide. In Paul's lifetime, which if we go from the, the extreme guesses, was anywhere from about 5 B.C. to 60 to 65, I'm sorry, 5 B.C. to 60 A.D. So on the lower right corner, that should be A.D. Somewhere around 65 years of his life. In that time span, there were five different Roman emperors. The first one here in this uh, beginning timeline we would know him as Augustus. But the way that Romans named their emperors, he was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus, which if you take all of, the, all of those words literally is High General Caesar, or leader, son of, the divine, son of the divine and illustrious one. And that illustrious one isn't, it's, it's more the religious sense of somebody being illustrious. But that was who he, until he was about 15 maybe 20 years old, that's who was in charge. Next was Tiberius. And again, he had one of those names, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. So again, son of the divine illustrious one, the illustrious one. Tiberius was a great general, but he was a very haunted man according to, to history. Traditionally, they, they have diagnosed him now with, with depression. Um, he actually exiled himself from Rome when he got tired of, of ruling. He didn't step down, he just took himself out of the picture. And when he died, <clears throat> the one that followed him up was the one that we all know as Caligula. He was, I guess, considered now to be very insane. He was a very violent individual. Uh, a lot of the things that he did 
killed a lot of people. He commanded people to be killed for, for no reason. He was assassinated by a conspiracy of senators and the Praetorian Guard, the ones that were determined to serve Caesar. And when he was killed, Claudius, who was mentioned in uh, the book of Acts, Claudius was then given power. He became the Caesar. Now, he actually wasn't too bad of a guy. Um, he had uh, a health problem, and he was considered weak. So he, w he wound up killing a lot of other people who were trying to... Uh, to, to take his power away, but what finally killed him was his wife. That is, the, the traditional belief is that his wife, um, Agrippina, I forget what, which one she was, poisoned him because her nephew, Nero, was next in line, and she wanted her nephew to be in charge. Now, Nero was the Roman emperor at the end of Paul's life. Uh, traditionally, we don't have proof of this, but traditionally it's believed that Nero is the one who beheaded Paul. Nero was a great persecutor of Christians, great persecutor. The uh, text that I were reading at first bullet point there, he would burn them as a source of light at night. Christians, bodies, burn their bodies. In 64 AD, this was either right at the end or, or right after Paul's life, we know that there was the great fire in Rome. Nero, the emperor, blamed Christians for it and used that to kind of empower himself and his forces to further persecute Christians. These are the men who were in charge of the biggest government in the world when Paul wrote Romans. Romans was written somewhere around 60 AD, plus or minus five years. So Nero, this man, was in charge when... Paul wrote Romans 13, verse 1, about we should submit ourselves to the human authority. I think that says a lot. That is words written by a man inspired by God during a time of where, where persecution was, was no greater than under Nero. <clears throat> so one of the main, I guess, goals, reasons for government is the creation and the enforcement of laws question is, what laws are they responsible for? <clears throat> Excuse me, let me find my spot. So what laws are the, are, is government responsible for keeping? Is it God's laws? I, earlier civilizations, yeah, maybe government was, was wrapped around God's law. We know this with Islam and the Muslim governments, they do the Sharia law. Um, but here in the United States, what is our government responsible for keeping? Well, not, not God's laws. We know that. What about nature's laws? I want to bring an a, a interesting point. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now, I'll reiterate this in a second. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. What this is saying, they're the Gentiles, they were not Jews. They did not have the law of Moses. But Paul noted that even these Gentiles knew that there were things that were not right to do. Case in point, was murder wrong before the law? Yes, because you know, we know back Cain and Abel. But there was no law. So is murder 
you know, was murder wrong before there was a law? That's my point. There are things that are wrong regardless of what a law or what human and man might say. <clears throat> so I came up with this definition at the bottom for, for the rest of this uh, sermon. We're going to kind of use this, this definition uh, for the laws that government are responsible for enacting. So let me read that. Government and their laws are responsible for policing the actions that affect our conscience. I pulled that from, from this verse. The Gentiles knew right from wrong without the law. So God's law is meant to address those things, those things that are just internationally are, are considered right and wrong. That's what government is for. They provide justice to the wrong, and they provide punishment to the guilty. So there are a few places, at least nowadays, where God and man agree, where government has derived these laws that agree with what God has said. Capital offenses, for the most part, the extremely serious ones, the ones that end in the loss of life, those are the main ones that God and man agree on. So we all know Exodus 20, verse 13, thou shalt not kill. And Matthew 5, 21 says, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So where a man goes and says, it is wrong to murder, we have laws that prevent that, God goes just a little bit further. He agrees, right? It's bad to murder. It is wrong. It is a sin to murder. But he goes a little further and says, even being angry with a brother without cause. At 1 John 3, verse 2, verse 12, excuse me, <clears throat> not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So throughout Old Testament, New Testament, we know God speaks out against murder. So does man. What about rape? Deuteronomy 22 and verse 25 and 26. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. So again, another instance, another capital offense where God and man agree. Now, God had a different idea for punishment, however. For both of those crimes, the punishment has always been death. No questions. If the, if the crime was proven, the man or whoever, was, whoever did it was put to death. Man's idea has varied uh, for uh, very often. There are two, I want to point out the top two here, and we're going to look at a, at, a, at a graph. So in 1972, there was a U.S. Supreme, Su Supreme Court decision in the case of Furman versus Georgia. Before that, typically in, in courts across the U.S., there was a mandatory death sentence for somebody who murdered another person. Uh, the jury would deliberate whether they killed, whether he was guilty, he or she was guilty. If they were guilty, mandatory death sentence. In 1972, um, a lawyer argued that a jury does not have sufficient knowledge or capability or, you know, knowledge of the law to make that decision. And that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that a mandatory death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment, which is a, violates the Eighth Amendment. 
I want to show you this next slide. This is a chart of the reported murders in Metro Nashville from 1963 until now. Let me get this little pointer over here to where I need it to be, if it'll move for me. Right here is 1972. Right here is when they just, the Supreme Court decided that there was no more mandatory death penalty. Going back one. In 1976, there was another one, Greg versus Georgia, and then another one in Texas that kind of reversed it. Okay, it said that as long as the jury is given the proper guidance, as long as they're notified about what a mitigating circumstance is or an aggravating circumstance, as long as the judge did his due diligence, then mandatory death sentences were not unconstitutional. Oh, let me go. And look what happened. This is 1972. Reported murders in Nashville jumped from 68 to 96 and stayed up there until, guess what, 1976, and they came back down. Now, we would expect to see these go up as the population of Nashville increases. Um, so beyond that, I don't, I don't have any evidence that correlates any of the other spikes, but I thought this one was very interesting. So let me back up one more. This one, I think, is, is even, e even better. So in 1977, there was another U.S. Supreme Court decision called Coker versus Georgia. And it said, basically, when a man rapes an adult woman, if the adult woman does not die from it, then a mandatory death sentence, because at this time there were mandatory death sentences for rape. U.S. Supreme Court said that is not right. If the woman doesn't die, the man shouldn't either. Let's see how good that did. decided that the death penalty was no longer relevant for rape. Look what happened in Nashville. Went from 130 to over 300 in the period of two or three years. Doubled. And as you can see, it's continued to stay high. Should man agree with God? I think so. So there, even with that, there are some pretty big areas where God and man disagree. What about abortion? Abortion, we know, is legal in this country. Let's read this interesting point in Exodus 21. There's three verses in uh, verse 22 through 25. If men strive, or if they are, are fighting, and they hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished. He shall be surely punished. And then continuing on, and if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So this is a case of two men fighting or something that causes an accidental miscarriage. Not even on purpose, not even intentional, not willful. And still, excuse me, the punishment was life for life. God has a high respect for fetuses, for a conceived being. Jeremiah and Isaiah in the womb, both of them in their, 
in various places, said that they were called while they were in the womb. Either way that it was completed, the, the death of a fetus was considered murder by God. Amen. Flat out. Murder, as we already know, punishable by death. Now, in this country, there are so many different variations of numbers and reports. Um, the idea is some 300,000. That's just in the city of New York in a year. 300,000 abortions. City of New York in a year. What about adultery? Adultery is another big thing that we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament that is, I don't know, it's, it is illegal in some states. We'll get to that here in just a second. But it was another one. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both of them put to death. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die. So God has a very different opinion on adultery than we do, do we not? Now this is one thing that I did not know. There are 23 states in the United States where adultery is illegal. Again, sorry if that's hard to see. The ones marked with a star, Idaho, Oklahoma, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Massachusetts, it is a felony to commit adultery. And the other ones there, the, the red states, as you can see, Tennessee is not. But the red states there all consider it to be a misdemeanor. Now, it is rarely, if ever, actually enforced. And usually during divorce proceedings, it's just used as a mitigating or a aggravating circumstance. So who gets the house? Who gets the kids? Well, it depends. Who was the cheater? That's really all it's used for. It's not illegal as in jail time and a fine and those things. Um, they use it to, to help with divorce proceedings. And so with all of these differences, and we know that there are several less, you know, several lesser crimes than murder and rape that, that where God and man don't disagree or don't agree but is it possible for something to be right and wrong at the same time? I'll ask you that. <clears throat> that next question, is illegal always immoral? Think about that. If it is illegal to go against the government, is that action always immoral? Well, no, right? Anytime, really, any time that there is an always in there, you can probably say no. But look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were... Underneath Daniel, they were put in very high places, and they refused when the cymbals and the harps and the music played, they refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. And they were punished for it. We remember that. They were thrown in the fire. But they didn't die. They did something that was illegal, but it was definitely not immoral. They believed God. They trusted that God would keep them safe. What about Jesus? Now, he didn't break governmental laws. He broke some of the traditional laws about healing on the Sabbath, claiming to be the Messiah, those kind of things, the ones that they wound up killing him for. But he broke those laws, but we know that Jesus did not commit sin. What about things today? What about prayer and evangelism in schools? Now, it's, it's hard to use the word illegal with that because there's no, no uh, punishment for it other than being told to stop. But that, we're getting to a point where that is going to be illegal. It's very frowned upon now. Now, 
I will have to admit, we went to a, uh, a high school game at Cookville High School, and they had a prayer before the game. I was very kind of shocked, to be honest, but I was very happy that they did it. But it does, there's now laws wrapped around it. It can't be uh, a teacher. It can't be somebody who works for uh, the school. It had to be one of the kids. So one of the kids said a prayer before, before the game. What about missionary work? We know that there are countries, there are some places in India, there are lots of places in Africa, most of them Muslim-controlled, some of them Hindu-controlled, that don't allow missionary work. It is a law. So are we to obey their law, or are we to obey God's commandment? I'll let you think on that. Next question. Is something that is immoral always illegal? Again, we have used the word always, so the answer is no. Remember David and Bathsheba. David did something very immoral, but he was the king. So was it illegal? No. But we know that David was, was punished for that by God. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Their actions when they sold a piece of land and then gave a little bit of the money, not all of it, but they said that they gave all of it. What they did was not illegal. They told them, well, you could have just gave us what you wanted. But it was immoral. They lied. And God punished them for it. What about now? Things that are not illegal, but they are most definitely immoral. Alcohol. I'm not going to reiterate Brother Randy's. He, he's done a very fine job of telling us exactly how and why the Bible speaks against alcohol. We know that the reality is that alcohol destroys lives. It destroys families. It takes life. It is a very immoral thing, but it's not illegal unless you, you know, abuse it. What about prostitution? And we know that there are places in Las Vegas and there's places in other countries where it's totally legal, controlled, taxed. You have a license with your name on it, with your blood type, the last time you got tested for STDs. Very, very controlled and structured part of the economy in some of these places. Not illegal. Is it immoral? Yeah. So how do we know? What, what, what better rule of thumb, what better measuring stick, which measuring stick is better, morality or legality? You can answer. Morality, without a doubt. God provides our answer in Acts 5, verse 29. <clears throat> but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. And so government, we know, is righteous in its authority, but definitely not in action. The problem with government is that it's made up of men. That has always been a problem that will continue to be a problem until Jesus decides to come back and remove all governments from earth. When government and God disagree, who should we follow? We should follow God. Acts 5, 29. Matthew 22 and verse 36 and 40 has a very interesting way to look at it. If we ignore government, if we ignore the issues between morality and legality, just answer this. Answer this question. Matt, starting in verse 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, 
with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you imagine what this country would be like if we only had those two laws? Law number one, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Law number two, love thy neighbor as thyself. We didn't have a book this big to tell us how many taxes we should pay. Or we didn't have a book this big to tell us what we can't do. Uh, the Tennessee Code annotated, if they put it in a regular book, it'd be about a foot and a half tall. Um, but to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no plainer way to take the Christian approach to government, to laws, than to understand that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the idea of obedience is a very important one. We know that we are to be obedient to the government and to God. God has given us a very simple plan to follow. What, what do we have to do to be obedient to God? Well, we have to hear the word. We have to believe it. We have to repent and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And then we have to be baptized. There's a lot of argument about the legal structure there, um, but it's very plain to us. If we hear the word and we believe it, we listen to the promises that God has made, we will love those promises. We will love what God has put in place for us. And if we love those promises and we love those blessings, we will want to act on them, right? That's the, kind of the way that the logic flows. We act on those promises by that confession and the repentance. We stop doing those things that are against God's will because we love that will so much. And we confess publicly that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Bible says that baptism <clears throat> is an answer of a good conscience towards God. If we hear God, we love what he says, we love what he has to say, we love his promises and his blessings, we will do what he wants us to do. Confession, repentance, and baptism. Through that baptism, we come into contact with the blood of God, symbolically, obviously, but that blood that was shed for us to give us the remission of sins. And as we, are, as we continue to live faithfully in Christ, that is our goal, to make it to heaven, to live up to the promises, to live up to the blessings, to pay him back in our actions and our deeds in this life for what he has done for us. Now, the invitation song will be sung here in a minute. And if anyone here has the need to come forward to lay on, on Christ and on us the burdens in your life, or to confess of some sin that you did, we would be more than happy to take that, to pray for you on your behalf. If you're not a Christian, we would love, this room is, is full of people who would really want nothing more today than for there to be one person added to the church before we leave this building. This room is full of people who want nothing more than that. And this room, this building is full of a God who loves you and who wants you to be part of his fold. If you are subject to the invitation this morning, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.